Welcome to C4 Church Online, equipping you as you follow Jesus. Well, good morning, C4. My name is Joel. It's great to be with you here in Ajax this morning. Uh, if you don't recognize me, it's because I've been in Port Perry almost every Sunday for the last uh, couple and a half years. I want to say a big shout out to Port Perry, Pastor Casey, so proud of you, doing such a great job. I love you guys. And a shout out to C4 Balmanville, Pastor Nathan, uh, hello to you this morning as well. Uh, I've just stepped into a new role here at C4 as one of our executive pastors, so you might see me around a little bit more often, uh, but just really glad to be here with you this morning. We are continuing our series on 10 Commandments, and I just want to start by thanking Pastor John for giving me the two best ones, arguably the two easiest ones, murder and adultery. That's my assignment this morning. So bear with me. Thank you, John. I mean, he's a smart guy. We all know he's smart. He's smart. He knows when to take a Sunday off when the, when the right commandments come up. You know, Honestly, I, I, when he told me that I'd be preaching on this, I, I was complaining a bit to my friends. I'm like, oh, this is a tough topic. How am I going to make this interesting? And as I dove into it the last week and week and a bit, um, my, my whole perspective changed, actually. Uh, it went from uh, nobody really deals with murder and adultery to, okay, even I myself have been quite convicted as I've been going through this. Now, we might think at first glance that if you've never murdered somebody or you've never cheated on your spouse, you're in the clear and this message is not for you so you can just sit back. But Jesus, if, if you know your New Testament, he comes in and in the Sermon on the Mount, he has some direct comments on these two announcements, uh, uh, commandments rather. And it makes it quite an interesting message for us to dive into. Why 10 commandments though? I mean, we're halfway or more through this series why are we back in the Old Testament when Jesus has come and he has fulfilled the law? Why are we back here? Well, on a 10,000 foot, maybe 30,000 foot level for our church in this season, we've been talking a lot about how holiness matters. Holiness matters. The cross has happened. The cross has the final say. We are forgiven. So why do we dwell on sin and why do we talk about these kinds of things? But the, the reality is holiness really matters. And the Ten Commandments do a few things that are important for us. First of all, they, they show us that we need a Savior. They, they point us to Jesus. They remind us that we are not perfect. And we have a lot of work still to go. What they do is they actually humble us quite a bit. Another thing that they do is they show us who God is. They, they, they reveal his character. And the one thing that jumps out about his character is that he is good. He's good. He's a good God. He's not just all-powerful, but he's good. And, and, and he is just. And the other thing it does is it, is it really compels us, at least it compels me to worship. Because I look at my life through the lens of the Old Testament, realize that I'm really not worthy of his love because of all the things that I've done. And, and I see that he loves me anyway despite how I violate so many of these laws in my life, as I try to walk in holiness as a disciple of Christ, I'm amazed that God loves me anyway. And, and, and that's the gospel. And, and this is going to be a bit of a heavy message. Uh, so what I want to do is start with the gospel. Because we see the, the Ten Commandments through the lens of the cross. We see them as renewed people. We see them as people already in relationship with Jesus, already been saved and set free and forgiven. So 
So we don't have to worry about that. We know that there is no condemnation for those of us who are in Christ Jesus. And I want you to remind your heart that as we go through some difficult things this morning, you have already been set free if you are a, a disciple of Jesus Christ. Tim Keller says it this way, and it's a perfect summary of the Ten Commandments through the lens of the cross. He says, the gospel is this. We are more sinful and flawed than we ever dared believe. It's worse than you thought. Yet at the same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. That is the beauty and the message of the gospel, that Jesus bore our sin. Everything that, that we fall short of as we look at these commandments, he bore it already. And 2,000 years ago when he died on the cross, he knew what you did already. And that he lived a perfect life. Uh, and, and he died and he rose again. And because of that, we can have hope. So as we go there this morning, we see it through the lens of the cross. Now, murder and adultery. We have become so desensitized to these things in our culture. Uh, murder and adultery, quite frankly, is our entertainment. Take one scroll through Netflix. Think of things like Game of Thrones, House of Cards. I mean, I could list hundreds of movies and shows that we've all seen that make this the central storyline of the plot. We are desensitized to it. What we need to do, and the reason... You should come to church every week and listen to somebody like me open the word of God is because we need to continually compare our cultural ideas and, and, and our thoughts to what the scriptures say and realign ourselves with what God thinks about this. Because he has some thoughts on the things that we watch on TV, the things that we have become desensitized to. We need to become sensitive to it again. So again, before we dive in, this is not about shame. Godly sorrow leads to repentance and leads to life. Worldly shame leads to death. And as New Testament believers, we don't need shame and death. We have already been set free. So let's wrestle with these couple difficult commandments together. First of all, murder. The commandment is four words long, pretty straightforward. Exodus 20, 13, you shall not murder. Now, what does this mean? In the text, what it's driving at is essentially it's the unlawful taking of human life, innocent human life. And what the text denotes in Exodus is premeditation and, and deliberateness. It's kind of a difference between manslaughter and murder is driving at murder. We're not talking about killing animals. In most cases, we're not talking about other things like legitimate self-defense, accidental killing, capital punishment, war. We got to work all those things out on the side. But the heartbeat of this command is murder. And murder that comes out of a sense of vengeance. What are the biblical principles of this command? Because before we get to the implications for what we do with this and how it informs our decisions and our worldview, we have to understand what the Bible is really driving at in this short verse, but beyond as well. First of all, life is sacred. This is the core of our very existence. You only get one life. If it was 2013, I'd say YOLO here, but it's not, so I'm not going to. We only get one. Life is sacred. Secondly, life is a gift from God. And therefore, because it's his gift, he gets to decide who gets it and who doesn't. He is the author of life. He has authority over it, and he has given it to us as a gift. And ultimately, one of the major themes in the Bible is that we are made in the image of God. We call this Imago Dei, and we find the core of it in Genesis chapter 1. It says, Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, 
in our likeness. Just think about that. You are made not just in the image of God, but you are like him, made in his likeness, so that they may rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky, over livestock and all the wild animals, the earth, and over all creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image, in the image of God. He created them. He created us, male and female. He created them. Now, what Imago Day means for us, we could spend hours talking about it, but quite simply, it means that your life and you as a person, no matter what you've done, no matter what your socioeconomic status is, no matter your history, your bank account, you have inherent value. Your life has value. And what that means, secondly, is that you deserve to be treated such. You deserve to be treated as somebody with value. So you imagine murder through the lens of the three things that I just said, and you can understand why God says no to this. This is a sacred command. Now, as I uh, referred to off the top, Jesus comes along a little bit later in the New Testament. He blows the roof off the whole thing. I think a lot of people have, uh, in fact, I know because I hear it a lot, a lot of people and Christians Love the God of the New Testament found in Jesus because he's super chill. He just wants to hang out with sinners. He's really nice, full of mercy. They don't like the God of the Old Testament because in their opinion, he's wrathful and vengeful. I'd much prefer just to read the New Testament and that's the God that I like. Jesus debunks that idea pretty quick in the Sermon on the Mount because what he does is he comes along and, and as John Stott says, far from contradicting the law, Jesus endorses it. And he insists on its authority and supplies its true interpretation. Let's read in Matthew chapter 5. He says, you have, you have heard it said that it was, uh, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder. And anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. That's the penalty. But I tell you, anyone who is angry with a brother or sister without cause will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court. Anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. What Jesus is driving at here, he's not supplying a new interpretation. He's explaining the original intent of the law. And what he's saying is it's not just about outward acts. It's not just if you pull the trigger. It's a matter of the heart. And what he says as he explains this is that uh, the heart issue, the seeds of murder begin with anger and insults. Anger is a familiar emotion to all of us. There is a good kind of anger and a wrong kind. Jesus is driving at the wrong kind. He is driving at unrighteous anger. He says, if you are angry with a brother or sister without cause. Now, uh, it's okay to be angry at things that are a good cause. For example, if you're angry at human trafficking and you decide to start Safe Hope Home because you're angry at that evil and injustice, Jesus loves that. But if you are wronged by someone and you begin to harbor bitterness in your heart and you are unwilling to forgive them, I mean, I've met people in the church who won't even look at other people in the church. We talk to people all the time They haven't talked to their brother or sister or family member in years. Jesus comes along and says, what's going on in the heart there? J.I. Packer, one of my favorites, he says, hate in the heart 
can be just as much murder as violence against another person. Another word for this is malice. It's like, it's like wishing a person dead or, or, deci- or, or hoping that they would die. <laughs> Jesus is like, it's not okay, man. Even if you don't kill them literally, you are killing them in your mind and in your heart. They're already dead. And there's a problem here. Bitterness, unforgiveness, vengeance, and hatred. If that lives in your heart, Jesus has something to say. And the shocking thing that he has to say, usually when Jesus teaches, there's this, this shocking moment, this, this turn of events where you're like, what did he just say? And if you caught it in the text, he says that the same penalty in the Old Testament for murder is the same penalty that you will be liable for for anger in your heart. And what that penalty is, is judgment. And what that means is you fall short. You are not perfect anymore. (laughs) You are not holy like he is anymore. He does not have this kind of anger in his heart. I mean, we've seen Jesus flip over the money tables when injustice was taking place in the temple. Okay, that's good anger. But he does not have this kind of anger in his heart. In fact, he demonstrated that on the cross. He didn't hold bitterness towards you for what you've done against him. He forgave you. How could we withhold forgiveness from others when he has so radically forgiven us? He talks about insults too. And the problem with insults, I mean, I got a little convicted on this because me and my friends like to, you know, make fun of each other a little bit, mostly in good fun. The, the, The problem with real insults though is that it strips away the identity of the person. Uh, Raka means empty-headed, uh, you fool. It's, it's like we would say, idiot. You, you, you're, you're stripping their identity away. And the reason that's important is because of what we just said. Is because that person's identity is made in the image of God. So when you try to strip that away, or you go all the way, you, you maybe murder that person, maybe not even that much, your beef is with God. You're attacking God. And that's what Jesus says, like, if you have anger in your heart, if, if your heart is full of hate, there's a problem. I know a man who grew up in Newfoundland, not my dad. <laughs> this man grew up uh, with, a, with an angry father. Uh, he had a reputation around town as being a rage-filled man, a wicked man. Imagine growing up in a home like that. I mean, I have to imagine it. I, I would imagine some of you know what that's like. He grew up with an angry father, and uh, one day when he was 16 years old, he was in his dad's shop, and he was polishing off his rifle, because that's what you do when you're a newfie. <laughs> I'm half newfie, so I can say that. He was preparing for a hunting trip, and unexpectedly, his father walked in. And as he describes this story, time stood still when he saw his dad walk in. He looked at his gun, and he looked at his dad, and his dad looked back at him, knowing what he was thinking. And he put the gun down, and that day he moved away off the island here to greater Toronto area, and never moved back until recently after his dad was passed away. And it shocked him to his core, because he was so hurt by his dad. He had so much anger in his heart for what he'd been through. And in that moment, he saw his heart, what what his heart was capable of. And he saw that it was just one more step and he could have murdered his own dad. And this is what Jesus is driving at. You don't have to pull the trigger. 
You don't have to be incarcerated and convicted by the legal system. If hate is in your heart, if you are angry and won't let go of bitterness, problem, big problem. And not just because of where it can lead. It's a problem in itself. Unrighteous anger living in your heart, bitterness, sin. And it, and, it, and it causes you to fall short of the glory of God just as much as actually murdering somebody would. We're going we're gonna to talk through implications of this, but I want to I go next to adultery because there are some tie-ins here. We're going to do the same thing. Let's, def, let's read and then define it. So yeah, that was, that was murder. We're going to do adultery now. I hope you're having a great time this morning. <laughs> you can breathe if you want. <laughs> Here we go. Adultery, again, five words. Exodus 20, 14. You shall not commit adultery. Now, as I was studying this week, I was, I was shocked. Many commentators all said, this is called, this is known historically as the great sin. No, no, other, no other command, no other sin that I've found has such a weighty nickname. But this one is called the great sin. Quite literally, it means sexual relations with someone other than your spouse and particularly with someone else's spouse, although it doesn't have to be. For those who aren't married, sorry, not off the hook, in the Bible, sexual sin inside marriage is called adultery. Sexual sin outside marriage is called fornication. Our bodies are not our own. They were bought with a price and how we treat them is an act of worship. See, both, both inside marriage, outside marriage, fornication and adultery, they are both equally sinful. And we know that marriage and sex are defined, as John has said many times from this, this spot right here, is defined pre-fall, defined in Genesis. So we look there. We're not going to go into it in detail today. But though they are equally sinful, adultery has this extra layer of heaviness to it. Because what it does, particularly in older societies where the family was the center of the society, if a marriage was ripped apart by adultery, society was ripped apart because family was at the center of society. Now, today we live in a much more individualized culture. Uh, the ripple effects maybe aren't as deep and wide, although they are rippling through our culture now. But the point in the church is that we are kind of like the covenant community of old. If there is adultery in the church and a marriage is ripped apart in the church, the church is ripped apart. Not completely. Jesus is in control and he is good and he is Lord, but the ripple effect in the church from adultery is astounding and should scare us if we love the church. Why no adultery? What are the biblical principles? Well, first, it violates the sanctity of marriage. This idea of one flesh. What, what do you hear at every wedding? What God has joined together, let nobody separate. The sanctity of marriage. Secondly, it's an infringement of another person's rights. When you get married, you have certain rights to your spouse. Like, you become one flesh. Your body is theirs. Their body is yours. Like, you get to enjoy each other as the way God designed sex. And, and the thing about the Ten Commandments that doesn't come up enough is that they're here actually in a lot of ways for our protection. They protect the spouse from intruder, from intrusion on the marriage bed. 
And the third thing is that it was such a serious offense in the Old Testament because it broke the very relationship that was a reflection of God and his people. If you read your Old Testament, this is familiar. Old Testament prophets routinely use adultery as an image of the unfaithfulness of God's people. Most notably, we find this in Hosea in the first three chapters. Again, Jesus comes along and he just blows it wide open. He takes it wider and deeper than most people ever thought. Matthew chapter 5, 27, 28, he says, You have heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman or man lustfully has already committed adultery with her or him in his heart. Jesus says, just as anger is the root of murder, lust is the root of adultery. And again, adultery starts in the heart. John Stott, again, one of my faves, he says, we can commit murder with our words and we can commit adultery in our hearts or our minds. Jesus affirms the sexual ethic found in the Old Testament. He endorses it and then he deepens it and he takes it beyond outward actions to the level of desire. Scott McKnight says, Jesus is against sexual fantasizing with an inappropriate person. He knows where it eventually leads and his brother explains it in James chapter 1. Let's take a look. James says, commenting on this idea, then after desire has conceived... It gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, gives birth to death. I hope you're seeing, as I mentioned a moment ago, that the law is here and God's ways are asked of us, actually in a lot of ways for our protection. Jesus knows that if you let this seed grow in your heart, it's going to grow and it's going to give birth to sin. And sin leads to death. Jesus doesn't want that for his children. Now, there's a difference between looking and lusting. We are not told we can't look, observe. I love what Martin Luther, the old Martin Luther says. He says, you can't keep birds from flying over your head, but you can keep them from building a nest in your hair. I've always loved that. Watkins said, when a man looks lustfully at another woman, what's happening in that moment is, in his mind, he is rejecting his wife and giving himself to another. Therefore, it is not only physical sexual intercourse, but also mentally engaging in such an act of unfaithfulness that Jesus forbids. Now, as this is a difficult, I want to I want to counterbalance what we're saying. Adultery is horrific, but there is hope. There's a couple in our church who I'm not going to say who it is. Let's call them Rick and Jane. Uh, Rick grew up, um, and his his father cheated on his wife when Rick was 12, and it put a lot of anger in little Rick's heart. Rick grew up, and he married Jane when they were young, and the first three years of marriage were very difficult. They had some time apart. They tried to come back together, and Jane admitted that she had been having an affair on him. Imagine having your deepest fear realized. Perhaps some of you can. Imagine the moment when he finds out, how would he react? Only Jesus can help you in that moment, by the way. He says, and I quote, at that moment, when I was staring my greatest fear in the face and should have been angry and ashamed and filled with hate, all of a sudden I went numb. My whole body tingled. It was like God's love rushed over me. All of a sudden I felt safe and calm. And I told her that I loved her and I would always love her. 
And I forgave her and, I, and apologized to her for my own role in our broken marriage and asked for her forgiveness. Again, a, a story of healing and, and Jesus' direct intervention in a situation that could have gone so far the other way. Today, this family attends our church. They have four beautiful kids. They're amazing people. And, and God saved this marriage that easily could have ended, easily. Those are murder and adultery. What happens when the two come together? I mean, it kind of reminds me of uh, the Shawshank Redemption, kind of how it begins. Discovers that his wife is having an affair. He's got a gun in his hand. I mean, put yourself in that situation. If there's hate in your heart, what are you capable of? Another story I want to share on this subject. A man who attends our church, who I, I deeply love and respect, uh, he got married young, and after two months of marriage, he began to sense that something wasn't right. He wondered if his wife was having an affair and eventually confronted her about it. She denied it completely. And then one day, a mutual friend saw his wife walking in the mall with another man holding hands. Deepest fear. He confronted her about it, and she stonewalled him. He tried to reconcile, but the marriage fell, marriage fell apart. So filled with anger and frustration, he said these words to me as he told the story. He said, Joel, it was either going to be her or him or me. One of us was going to be dead. And by God's grace, he didn't do any of those things. Soon after, he had it on his heart to reach out to a local church, and that began an incredible story of him meeting Jesus and finding healing. He's remarried now, and he's the most delightful man I've ever met, and he's a pillar of our church. And it's evidence of how God can take broken situations and bring life back and bring hope back to broken situations. So what do we, what do, we do with all this? There's, there's a lot for us to think through. I think the first thing that we need to say is that we, we all just need to acknowledge, those of us who walk with Christ, disciples of him, we need to acknowledge something, that, that God is God and that he has the final say on everything. <laughs> in, in the short time we have together this morning, I can't possibly cover all of the implications for the things that have come up this morning, but what we need to do together here on Sunday morning is start with the biblical foundations, the principles of what's behind these laws, and then we need to kind of work it out. Work it out in community. Work it out with your spouse. Work it out with your connect group because the implications are far-reaching. What we can do this morning is we can start with the heart because that's what Jesus is driving at. See, the underpinning of both these commandments is the law of love. What does Jesus say the two most important commandments are when he was asked? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. Of course, when you sin, you break the first one, loving God. But when you commit the sin of murder or adultery, you are violating the second one. You are sinning against your neighbor. You are not loving your neighbor. That, that, that is the core problem. Paul writes about this exactly in Romans chapter 13, verse 9. He says, you shall not commit, uh, he said the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, 
you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and whatever other commands there may be are summed up in this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. So as we unpack what's been said this morning, we have to start with the heart. Start with the heart. Start with the law of love and see if something might be off there, vertically or horizontally. Thinking about the heart, I'm reminded of Psalm 139, one of my favorite psalms. And this should be our prayer as we respond here in a few moments together. It says, search me, God. Know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. This message this morning and, and, and myself as I was preparing this week leads us to repentance. It, it, it must. Because holiness is important. And as we look at our lives through the lens of these two commands and what Jesus has to say, say about them, I think many of us will be convicted, myself included. Now, counterpunch, <laughs> there is grace. Again, we don't read these as people who have no hope or who are filled with shame. We read them knowing every thought, every heart problem, every action, including the ones we've discussed today. Jesus knew about them when he died on the cross for you 2,000 years ago, and he was good with that, and he died for you anyway. <laughs> so this is heavy, but it's okay. There is grace. Now we need to come before the Lord and seek forgiveness and repentance. The truth is we can be forgiven of all our sins. Maybe you're sitting here this morning and you have committed murder. You have committed adultery. Maybe you feel like you're beyond forgiveness, but you're not. One more story. I, knew a, I, I know a man who grew up in the Maritimes, and as a child, he battled polio. Uh, and as he describes it, it was the days where they would uh, put you in a hospital bed and pretty much leave you alone all the time. Uh, the only entertainment for the week would be a movie on Saturday night. You can see what that might do to your, your head. But a few years later, when he was 18, he was in the washroom looking at himself in the mirror. And for an inexplicable reason that still to this day he doesn't know why, he walked outside, he murdered his postman out of nowhere. Realizing what he did, he went and he turned himself in. He spent time behind bars. He was incarcerated, he spent time in prison, and his sentence was reduced for, for, for good behavior. He was never an, a, a wicked man and, and then a good man like he is today. He was always good. Something just slipped one day. He doesn't know why. When he got out, he, he found a job in a factory and he grinded it out for his whole career. When he retired, uh, he, he, he began to pour himself into volunteering at the church and with the elderly. Somebody helped him a few years ago receive a formal pardon from the government so that he could continue to serve in his local church. And uh, I know this man, and he is a, a beautiful, gentle, wonderful man. Uh, pillar of God's church. It's another illustration. This is what I want to say. If you've done something bad, first of all, it's all bad. We're all more sinful than we thought. But Jesus can save. Jesus can forgive. 
Jesus has grace. Jesus knows what you did, and he loved you and died for you anyway. Now, uh, about murder and the implications for it, I'm not able to dive into it and do it justice today. What I've done this morning is I've shown you the biblical principles of why murder is off the table, why murder is sin. Uh, I, I can't unpack all the implications. That's for you to do now. This is for you now, homework. Go away and in your connect group with your spouse, with your, with your own self, uh, I, I, I would say to you, look at what the Bible says about life and murder and think about suicide and abortion and, and, and euthanasia and, and, and you work it out. I just want to stop here. In a, in a group of this size at all of our sites, I know that there's a high chance that Perhaps there was some people here this morning, you might be thinking about taking your life right now. I just want to say, stop. Your life has value. Jesus loves you. You are not beyond hope. There is hope. Stop. If someone you loved died from suicide, it is not the unforgivable sin. You know, John told me that, and it really resonated. And I thought to myself, I grew up in fear <laughs> that even though I knew Jesus and I walked with him as a kid, what if I got in a car accident and the last word that I said was the F word and that sent me straight to hell even though that I was having a great life? I lived in fear. What if the last thing I ever did was sin? I didn't have time to ask for forgiveness. God doesn't work that way. Suicide does not have the last say, but it is not permissible in the Bible. But if you've lost somebody, have hope. It doesn't have the final say. Adultery. I mean, let's just start straightforward. If you're having an affair right now, stop. If you're having an affair right now, stop and repent. If you're thinking of starting one, stop dead in your tracks. You're headed for disaster. Disaster for your life, for your family. And if you attend this church, us. Stop. If you've had an affair in the past and you haven't yet asked for forgiveness, now, this morning. And, and Jesus goes into this later. Keep reading in the Sermon on the Mount. Again, I can't go into it now. But if, if you're thinking of leaving your spouse, apart from what Jesus says, that if they've cheated on you, you know, if you're thinking of leaving your spouse, stop. Stop. Read Matthew chapter 5. Jesus is stronger. Jesus can bring hope and healing. I hope you've heard that this morning. Your marriage is not beyond repair. Jesus can heal anything, and he is making all things new. With regards to the heart, what Jesus drives in at, this is going to tag a lot of us, I think, myself included. If you have anger or, or malice or you're holding on to unforgiveness, you will not forgive somebody. I am not saying that you need to snap your fingers and forgive them. John has said this so many times. Forgiveness is a process but if you are blatantly unwilling to work towards forgiveness with another person and you are holding on to that in your heart, maybe you won't look at them, you won't talk to them, and you won't talk to God about it, you need to repent of that. And by the way, that's a you issue and it's an us issue too. Bitterness. And then, of course, lust. Fornication. I'm going to lead you in a time of repentance in just a moment. But where did we start this morning? We started with the gospel. And this is where I want to end. 
Keller said, we are more sinful than we ever dared believe. Yet at the same time, we are more loved and accepted than we ever dared hope. See, the Bible declares that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So we do not look down at each other for our mistakes. We are all equally incapable of measuring up to God and his holiness. Yet despite our sin, we are so loved. We are loved by God, not because of what we do, the reverse. Despite what we have done, we are loved and we are able to receive forgiveness. And because of Jesus' sinless life and his sacrificial death and his glorious triumphant resurrection, we can find hope and we can have healing and life and life in abundance, which Jesus promised to those who want it. So I want to lead you in a time of prayer, and we're going to do this around communion this morning. We're going to have past communion in just a moment. It's going to be a sacred moment as it always is for us who know and walk with Jesus. You know, as we often say, if, if you don't know Jesus, if, if you don't know him, you've never decided to welcome him into your life. Or if you were like me years ago and you knew all about him, but you were blatantly running the other direction. This morning is a wonderful opportunity for you to come home, to make a decision to follow Jesus either for the first time or all over again. But if you're not ready for that, I would just say, could you just maybe pass on communion this morning? Because what communion is, is a sacred time for us who are in Christ Jesus. First of all, to remember what he has done. As we, as we think through our lives, as we think through what we may need to repent, we think about the cross and we think about what he did for us. And then, and then as Paul explains, we should then examine ourselves. And that's what I'm leading you to do in this moment to examine your actions, but just as much to examine your heart. Search me, God, know my heart. See if there's any unrighteous way in me. Once you've done that, repent. And the only response after that is worship. I hope that what you're hearing this morning is a call to worship. (laughs) I hope you're healing hope. I hope you're seeing the love of God, that despite our failures, he loves us anyway, and he loves us so much, and he is ready, and he is waiting to forgive and to heal, to be reunited, to use you powerfully, to heal your marriage, to heal your broken family. It's like our friend Rick, so much anger in your heart, you don't know how it could ever leave. Jesus is stronger than that. Don't you believe that? He's bigger than that. So I want to invite you to stand in this moment. We're going to respond with communion and in worship. And I want to lead you in a time of prayer and repentance and worship of our Lord. Would you pray with me this morning? Lord Jesus Christ, we love you desperately. We thank you, Jesus, for all that you've done. We thank you that you are good, that you are not a tyrant, God. You are not just powerful, but you are powerful and good. We thank you that you love us, God. And we thank you for your holiness because you are so worthy of our worship. And that's what we're gonna do in a moment. In fact, we're worshiping you right now as we pray and confess our sin to you. Lord, we want as a church, as one of the leaders here, I mean, I declare what's already been said. We wanna be a church known for our holiness. We want to be holy, Lord. We wanna be like you. 
So we bring our sin before you this morning. And I would just encourage you, church, wherever you are, across all our sites, just to take a moment, go through the things that I've listed and repent what you need to repent. Talk to God about what we need to talk about. Just take a moment right now. God, we thank you for sending your son to die on the cross to take all of that. It is forgiven. Jesus, you are greater than our deepest sin, triumphant over our deepest fears. You have made us as children of God in your own image. You want to be with us. You want us to be free. That is what this is about, Lord, freedom. Unforgiveness puts us in slavery. Sin puts us in bondage. You have come to bring freedom. So Holy Spirit, come this morning because where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. We love you, Jesus. We worship you. Come and heal our lives, heal our marriages, heal our, heal our families, heal our church. Make us more like you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for joining us. To connect to the ministries of C4, visit c4church.com.